This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question of the day today is a bit of a tough one because it's a kind of a moral or ethical dilemma that you probably have found yourself in at some point. You may have seen the story over the weekend. BC Ferries workers say they need more help to deal with harassment, threats, and physical violence from some customers. And they want people to know that kind of behavior isn't acceptable. So they have launched a public information campaign. But our question is, if you saw someone harassing or being abusive to someone in customer service, would you intervene? Like, let's say you're at the store, right? You see somebody just berating somebody, uh, like a retail person or a salesperson, something like that. Would you intervene if you saw them being like verbally abusive or would you say something? Do you think, yes, absolutely, I would step in or no, too risky. You don't know, you know what's going to happen if you get involved. Some people would wait until it blows over and then offer support right? To that person saying, I saw that, what that person did was unacceptable. Uh, Or do you go, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure what I would do if I was confronted with that situation. That's our hot question of the day today. We want you to think about that. I also would love to hear if you've had this happen to you, particularly if you're in a customer service, then I know you've had this happen to you at some point. Call our buzz line and tell your story. Tell us what happened. 604-331-2899. Now, you can also vote in this, of course, for our hot question of the day. You'll find it at SimiSarah980 on Twitter. You'll also find it at CKNW on Twitter. Or, Wayne, tell me your story. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. Anybody who has worked in any kind of retailer, customer service job has had this happen to them where a customer just goes after them for something. Do you wish somebody had intervened? Did somebody intervene? Would you intervene if you were that person that was standing there watching that unfold? That's our hot question of the day today. Can't wait to get more into that discussion because I know this is unfortunately a more common occurrence than we realize. All right, let's talk about what's been going on in Hong Kong just over the last couple of days. I mean, never mind the news from the last few weeks when we saw the protests really ramping up. It has gotten even more so in the last few days. The United States consul in Hong Kong has condemned the violence among government critics but and says all should have the right to express their views peacefully. Over the weekend marked the 20, I think 25th uh, anniversary, or sorry, the one of the anniversaries, should be 22, 1997, this 22nd anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from the British uh, back to China. And so hundreds of demonstrators were protesting. Then they ended up storming the legislature. Uh, they wrote graffiti on the walls. They continued their protest. The Consul General, Kurt Tong, says the U.S. would have preferred to see more peaceful protests. The view of the United States is that the right for uh, freedom of expression is both most effective and most proper when it is exercised peacefully. And so the United States, like many people, was disappointed to see the uh, violence and vandalism yesterday in the Legislative Council. I think what the protesters want is to make sure they keep up the pressure against the government to withdraw that extradition bill, and they continue to, to demand the resignation of leader Carrie Lam. Meanwhile, Chinese state media has now run footage of police in Hong Kong clearing protesters from the streets. That has actually been a break. Uh, they've done nothing but silence in Chinese state media uh, with all the other protests that have been going on over the last few days. So we wanted to talk more about this. Joining us is Joanna Chu, who's the managing editor of of Star Vancouver, former correspondent in China and Hong Kong. Joanna, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Do you think that the protests kind of ramped up more in the last couple of days? I think what's happening is that it's been weeks and actually it's been years of Hong Kongers protesting, you know, different um, things that they see as assaults to the freedom they're supposed to enjoy for at least 50 years after Hong Kong was handed in 1997 from the British back to China. So I think from an outside perspective, it seems like they're raising up the pressure um, and that it's a concerted effort. But the protests, um, actually, they're leaderless. There's not um, a designated leader who's telling people what to do. It's kind of like a group activity. And yesterday, July 1st, for Canada, it, it couldn't be more different. They were celebrating our freedom how lucky we are. In Hong Kong, every year they have a handover march where they're protesting um, being under China's rule again and what has happened since then. 
actually tens of thousands of people were marching peacefully through the streets as they do every year. Mm-hmm. It was about um, a few hundred protesters splintered off, broke away, and they went towards the legislature building and stormed in. They broke the glass. Um, and I think it's since then, people have been very divided over this in Hong Kong. People are arguing amongst themselves. Um, and a lot of people don't agree with what the protesters did, the small group that went into LegCo. Um, but I think it's a sign of how desperate people are. This, is, this isn't an issue that's been going on for weeks. It's been going on for the past couple of decades. So people are frustrated. They yeah. see that media comes and covers when they have a big march, um, but there's not like concerted um, attention and involvement from world um, governments, et cetera, on what's happening in Hong Kong. And they feel really frustrated and desperate. So you mentioned there that, you know, they were Hong Kong was supposed to be guaranteed 50 years of continued kind of freedom from China when they signed that deal with the British. But what has happened, would you say, over the last 20 plus years then? Yeah, so it's gone to the point where a lot of people don't know that Hong Kong booksellers who publish books that are critical of the Chinese leadership in Beijing, they were actually disappeared and they ended up just showing up in Chinese jails um, on Chinese state media making these confessions that looked, by all accounts, fake and forced. Um, one of the booksellers has now doesn't even feel safe being in Hong Kong and he has moved to Taiwan. So people don't feel physically safe there. They think that they could be taken if they do something that uh, China considers rebellious. Um, And that's why people are so scared about this extradition bill, because that could formalize things where um, through the legal system, Hong Kongers could end up facing the legal system in China. Um, And we have two Canadians still in the Chinese uh, legal system right now, no access to lawyers. Um, they were detained in December after Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was uh, arrested in Vancouver. Um, and they have, they're taken in this uh, secret jail type of situation in China where it really exposes and makes clear to the world, kind of demonstrates why Hong Kongers are so scared. They're scared of facing China's legal system and they're worried that um, it won't be um, done, you know, properly through proper legal means. Actually, thousands of Hong Kong lawyers um, march in the streets wearing all black, around 3,000 of them. So it's something that the, a lot of the city professionals have united over in opposition to this bill, including legal professionals who don't have um, faith in uh, Beijing. Right. Kind do, you of think, honoring. Do, yeah, do you think that there was faith in the beginning that, oh, yes, Hong Kong will be allowed to continue on as is? Yeah, I think in the beginning... Some people may have had more optimism, but actually a lot of people, people who had uh, lived through witnessing and observing um, in 1989 when Chinese soldiers fired on protesters in Beijing in the Tiananmen massacre, a lot of people saw that and actually they immigrated away from Hong Kong well in advance of the 1997 Hanover. My family was one of the people, many Hong Kongers who decided to leave, you know, preemptively. So I think if you see migrants all over the world from Hong Kong, a lot of them, maybe the majority of them, have left because they didn't want to live under Chinese rule in Hong Kong. Right. And you were a correspondent in China and Hong Kong. What are Mm -hmm. the differences there? Like, tell people what it's like to work in one Mm -hmm. versus the other. Yeah, in Hong Kong, first I worked for actually a Hong Kong newspaper. And there is, um, I encountered and my colleagues encountered really mysterious and strange incidents of self-censorship and stories we were writing that were critical of China not being allowed to be published, kind of pressure that we sensed and heard of from higher-ups. And um, and a a senior editor for a Hong Kong newspaper, Ming Pao, he was actually attacked with a meat cleaver. Um, He was slashed three times in the back after his newspaper produced an investigative article related to China. So living there as a journalist in Hong Kong actually was more scary for me than... um, Working in China, because in China I work for foreign media um, versus local media in Hong Kong, where things are really precarious. Press freedom has been going down, according to Hong Kong Journalist Association surveys, year after year. Um, People don't trust the system. They don't really get clear answers about where this pressure comes from. So it's just a state of anxiety. But it's real. People have been attacked physically, but, you know, the people haven't, the attackers, you know, you don't know who sent them. Um, right. It's all very scary, you know. And you're going back, isn't that right? You're going, are you going for a visit? 
Yeah, I'm going uh, for the next week. I'm flying later today. Um, it's such a big story. <laughs> I have to be there to see for myself and talk to the people there. And um, Canada has such a huge stake in Hong Kong. Um, 300,000 Canadians um, are also Hong Kong citizens, dual citizens. So that's a lot. It's a big story. Yeah, that's <laughs> a, a huge story. For Canada. I'm not sure that like everybody understands that, right? When we talk about mm-hmm. this, this is not an international story. This is a story with which Canada is indelibly linked. Yes. So what happens to those 300,000 people? Do you think there's a sense, a growing sense of nervousness there? Are people going to start leaving Hong Kong? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people, they got Canadian passwords because they're one of the many people who were scared um, of staying in Hong Kong. And some people may decide that um, they would you know, move back to Canada. Um, and also they might be putting more pressure on their government. As they have, a lot of Canadian Hong Kongers have been organizing protests of their own here in Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary. Um, and it could be even an election issue uh, coming up this year. Um, a lot of Hong Kong Canadians, that's a big group, 300,000 people. Yeah. It could be definitely an election issue, especially if they start moving back here. Uh, that safety net, as you pointed out, was always there mm-hmm. for a reason. Mm-hmm. Are people starting, do you think, come to the realization that? things are not going to get better? Yeah, I think there's been a long time kind of a sense of kind of resignation, depression among a lot of Hong Kongers. In a way, it's kind of an anticlimactic story where um, 50 years, the end result that's always been clear was that Hong Kong would would be part of China and there wouldn't be the existing uh, two systems issue now where Hong Kong currently should have some independence. Right. Um, so it's marching towards that time. I think you see that a lot of the more desperate and the violent protesters are people who are young, because um, 2047, that's their future. Um, that's their middle age, and they feel not optimistic about their future as things are going right now. How does China benefit from that, though, Joanna? Like, if they gradually take over Hong Kong, Hong Kong is this international symbol of finance mm-hmm. and, and, you know, prosperity, but if China takes over, wouldn't a lot of those businesses leave? Mm-hmm. Already business um, businesses have spoken out about what's been happening because it's not a stable environment to conduct business, Um it doesn't seem, a lot of people have commented, it doesn't seem quite logical because... Yeah. So China also wants Taiwan to come into the fold. Um, so logically, it would seem that they would treat Hong Kong well and be like, look, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong is part of China, but it kind of retains um, a lot of its rights and freedoms, so it's not so bad. So you should become part of us. But uh, I think a place like Taiwan, looking at what's happening in Hong Kong, wouldn't feel very... I'd be assured at all. No, no, I wouldn't think so either. <laughs> Listen, Joanna, good luck with your trip. We look forward to reading your reports. Thank you. Thank you. That is Joanna Chu for the managing editor of Star Vancouver. You know, for more than 30 years, the vast majority of countries all over the world actually agreed on something, and that is no whaling. And now that's not the case anymore. Two Japanese whale hunting boats have actually returned to port already with their first catch. They resumed commercial whaling in that country for the first time in 31 years. The last time, 1986. Now, it did continue whaling, they said, for research purposes, but not commercially because the International Whaling Commission had said, we are not going to be doing this. So what Japan did last year was withdraw from the International Whaling Commission. So the country is no longer subject to its rules. Uh, Japan has long argued that it is possible to hunt whales in a sustainable way, but they're willing to go against all these other countries in resuming the whale hunt. There's been an international outcry uh, from animal welfare activists, from just the general population of people. Uh, Certain experts believe that the resumption of traditional whaling may end up saving large government subsidies and the lives of many whales, though. We wanted to talk more about this issue today. Patrick Amage is with us, the director of the International Fund for Animal Welfare. Uh, He thinks this could be the end of traditional Japanese whaling. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Simi, it's good to be with you. Why do you think, it almost sounds like you're saying this could end up being a good thing. 
Indeed. Um, and it's, it's a little bit ironic. Yeah. But exactly as you outlined, Japan has for years been killing whales on the high seas in waters around Antarctica and the North Pacific. 23,000 whales in all since the 1986 global ban was instituted. And they've been doing that exactly as you reported in the name of science, sort of a long-running sham calling what was essentially a commercial practice, killing whales um, to take the meat to market, but dressing it up as scientific research. Right. And while Japan leaving, or any nation leaving an international conservation convention, like the International Whaling Commission, which Japan has now exited as of yesterday, um, that's always of concern. But in this case, the reality in the water is that Japan has also announced that they're not going to kill whales anymore in the high seas, neither in the southern hemisphere nor in the North Pacific. They are resuscitating commercial whaling. That's basically a name change, exactly as you reported. But they're only going to kill whales in their coastal waters. So while it's wrapped in defiance, uh-huh. um, what we're seeing is Japan finding a face-saving way out of whaling. And careful observers, both in Japan, where I've just been last week, um, and internationally, think that, wow, with the, with the retreat from the high seas, with the elimination of government subsidies, and now with whaling forced to pay its own way in the marketplace, this industry is going to drown very quickly. So is the idea of whaling still popular within the country? Like, do people find this acceptable? There's a diminishing number of very aged Japanese who have sort of a nostalgic memory in the immediate post-war period. Japan, like, like other countries around the world, needed whale meat as a source of protein. And the concern over time on, on the part of Japanese decision makers for having unfettered access to marine resources, fish, and other marine species um, has clear you know, geographic and historical uh, reasons behind it. But the overwhelming majority of Japanese today are not consuming whale meat. It's 0.1% of meat consumption right. in Japan today. And among young people, hardly any um, consumption at all. So it's, it's um, uh, a face-saving and forward-looking move by Shinzo Abe, and the Prime Minister of Japan, and his government, um, wrapped in, uh, in an explanation that makes sense to them, where they're apparently being defiant to the international community, but what they're right. really doing is reconciling themselves to the consensus for whale conservation instead of whale killing, and that's very welcome. Right. So they're saying we're only going to catch whales within the J- the Japanese limit around Japan. Right. Within their exclusive economic zone, no longer on the high seas. And they're also eliminating slowly subsidy support for the practice. And, in, and coastal whalers have expressed the concern in Japanese media saying, my goodness, we can't pay our own way. The market will never keep us afloat. So it's it's being done in a Japanese way. It's an elegant Japanese solution. It's a way out of whaling. What kind of whales are they catching? Um, his, uh, three species of whales are on the target list. Um, minke whales, which are the smallest of our planet's great whale species. Interestingly, whalers, uh, uh, Yankee whalers from New England and the U.S., where I'm from, and other whalers worldwide, used to dismiss the little minke whale as not being commercially viable because it's so small. It's on the target list. Say whales, a larger species of whale, um, uh, that Japan used to catch in the high seas waters of the North Pacific. There's a few of them swimming around Japan, and they say they're going to target them. And then a little-known species of whale called the Brutus whale is the third one. But overall, Japan has announced it'll be catching less than it did uh, over the past several years on the high seas. So it's good news for whales in the water, not the ones right around Japan, um, but we're hopeful that this practice won't last very long. Right. So it's so interesting that you say this because it's not the way it was really framed, right? And a lot of the stories that you see in the news, all you really see is that, man, they withdrew from the International Whaling Commission. That's terrible. Yes. And under normal circumstances, it would be. But, but it's not just good news for whales. It's not just good news for Japan in terms of not getting beaten, beaten up and, and bashed in quite the same way internationally on this. It's good news for the International Whaling Commission because for years, Japan has fought to a stalemate inside the IWC and put all kinds of taxpayer money into stopping conservation progress in that forum and trying to resuscitate the glorious days of high seas commercial whaling. And by its exit, Japan is allowing the IWC, the International Whaling Commission, to continue 
continue on a conservation course because more and more the IWC and its member government are focused on conservation threats to whales in the 21st century, not allocating quotas for whale killing. So uh, whether intended or not, the impact on international policymaking will also be positive thanks to this Japanese move. Right. Did anybody follow Japan out of the IWC? I know that Norway had always talked about also doing research purposes, you know, killing whales. Did any other country decide that, yeah, we're going to leave too? There were only two other countries that still kill whales for commercial purposes today. Iceland, which is just a within the last two weeks, announced that it won't kill any whales this summer, so that's very welcome. And Norway, which now becomes the world's leading whale killer, they just focus on minke whales in their coastal waters in the North Atlantic, but they have a quota of 1,278 whales this year. They don't catch that money, but they're still pushing on the international stage um, to, to be allowed to continue to kill these migratory species. Hopefully, global attention will now focus rightly on Norway as the world's leading whale killer as Japan exits the practice. Right. What, is it, what do you think this tells us, Patrick? Like, eventually, the public sentiment does catch up, right? Because in 1986, when the International Whaling Commission did this and said no more whaling, at the time, that was a big deal. It sure was. And... And now it's not nation as much. After nation, nation after nation, including mine, the United States, uh, your country of Canada, and others around the world, um, slowly, um, but with increasing speed, have uh, one after the other given up the practice of killing whales and, and put down harpoons, picked up cameras, and, and are pursuing whale and dolphin watching as a, an answer for coastal communities instead of whale killing. And finally seeing Japan and Iceland now reconcile themselves to that reality and in their own way uh, leave the practice of whaling um, is very good news. Okay, so you think this is very hopeful. So you think what over the next couple of years we may perhaps see Japan in this practice altogether? I don't think they're going to sign a surrender document. I don't think they're going to stand on the shore or the deck of their small whaling boats that they use in coastal waters and wave a white flag. Um, but it's clear from the nervous commentary of the coastal whalers and from the government's adamant position that they're going to limit sub- to eliminate subsidies that this this practice of whaling is on the way out in Japan. So interesting. Patrick, thanks for giving us our perspective on this. It's going to be my pleasure. That is Patrick Ramage, who is a director of marine conservation at the International Fund for Animal Welfare. You know, we all hope to leave a mark someday with our work, don't we? That we will be remembered. Not all of us will be. At least not like our next guest, that's for sure. Brad Jalbert is a rose hybridizer and a rose expert. His company, Select Roses in Langley, is known all over the world for creating the most beautiful specimens to celebrate all different occasions. For instance, he recently created a rose to celebrate the divine Miss M, Bette Midler, and her work as the founder of the New York Restoration Society. He's written books on roses. He's known internationally for his expertise. So now this superstar horticulturist is joining us in studio to talk about roses and more. Hi, Brad. Hello. How are uh, you today? I am so happy to be talking to you because I love this topic. How did you get into it? Uh, it was. I always tell people it was a hobby that went wild. I loved roses when I was young. I was an introverted, uh, quiet child. Mom and dad will disagree, but I was. And <laughs> so everybody in our family gardened, and I, I loved growing roses and beautiful things. And that it, and that really was it. Um, and I learned more about it, and I wanted to perfect my skills. So I read more books. There was no internet back then. Uh, that ages me. And, <laughs> and you had to talk and engage and meet people and learn more about the craft. And that's that's how it all started. And you went back to school so you could yep. be a horticulturist? Yeah. I studied at the uh, University of Fraser Valley. They call it now. I'm a top 40 alumni of that group. Of course and you are. <laughs> it, was a lo- it was a lot of fun. And immediately out of that, I started the rose nursery and I started breeding, creating roses right away. And usually people get into that in their senior years, but I knew right away, I like to create my own. How do you do that? How do you create uh, your you, own new, you, brand new roses? Okay. It's really quite easy. Basically, a rose can... That. Yeah. No, but if, anybody can do a painting, but is it any good? So it's the same thing with roses. Okay. I choose who's going to be the boy who's going to be the girl and I arrange the date and and so and what happens I, after that and, is, what happens, yeah, and then they nature come, it, it, nature the seed is born and then we start selecting who's the best of the best 
I see. What is the process like? How do you start? How do we, start? we we take who's going to be the female flower and we strip off the male parts so that it can't pollinate itself. And then we collect. In, in the case of Bette Midler's rose, it was Sunny Sky was going to be the girl. So her boyfriend was Pope John Paul II. So we had to go and collect the boy parts of Pope John Paul II and make him do his little thing in a cup. And I collected his Paul. <laughs> he was hard to work with. <laughs> Brad's laughing at my face because I'm going, this is not how I pictured this going. This yeah, that, is- that's what happened on stage too with Bette. Um, and, and the Pope met Sunny Sky and little babies were born. And so we, out of those, maybe 100 germinated and we narrowed it down over the years to the best of that, that seed lot. Right. So that brings up the question, how long does it take then to create an entirely new rose? The first process, you do the cross in the summer, the next year it germinates and it blooms as a baby plant. And from then on, it's testing. So what we do, we want to develop a type of rose that's tough and strong that anybody can right. grow. So we plant them out in our field where we test them five to seven years. They're not sprayed with pesticide. They're barely fed. We water them maybe in severe drought. So you throw the toughest conditions toughest possible. Toughest conditions. And we want it to look the worst in our backyard. So in your garden, it looks the best. And that's the difference between our breeding program, and that's what's put them in demand with a lot of other people. Basically, I torture them. But your and, roses are known all over the world and very popular. Because I had asked you when you came in, you know, I love roses, but what do you do about aphids? Because I always had that problem when I grew yeah, roses. And you yeah, were like, sure. your problem is the type of rose that you're planting. Yeah, really it is. And some of them are just more resistant to it. Aphids can go on any, any plant. Um, so first of all, I tell people, if they're just a few, turn a blind eye to it. Who cares? We don't want to overspray with pesticides. If, if it's in a pot and you have no beneficial plants around, it's it's natural that the aphids will go to whatever is alive there, right. whether it's a weed or it's a rose. They happen to love beautiful things, so they go to roses. You can squeeze them off or use a little soapy right. water. But if you have a plant that's naturally resistant, and that's what we select for, it solves three-quarters of the problems. So we, we work now with Stanley Park, Queen Elizabeth, the Government House, all, all of those people, and then we've replaced those old roses with easy-to-grow ones because they don't spray anymore, and the difference is night and day, night Amazing. and day. How do you get your inspiration? Like, do you look at colors and you think, oh, I want this rose? How do you? I, it comes from within. I don't know. You don't <laughs> I, know? I always, I always say I live to inspire and be inspired. I will, the, the t-shirt you're wearing, I think, mm, I got a braid of rose that color. It's pink, like a, a very hot, bright pink. Hot, bright pink. I'll be walking along and I'll see something and I'll think, oh, I'd love to braid a rose that color. It just comes to be whatever. In my quiet time. What makes a great rose? To you, what makes a perfect rose? Well, I don't believe there's perfection in nature. The only thing perfect in this world is my mother. And uh, Oh, you're than, so sweet. <laughs> oh, she's listening. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and she's thinking, why isn't he home at work? Um, you know, the what makes a perfect rose, I think it's fragrance. Everybody wants that. The, yes. pu- the public wants something that they don't have to fuss with that's easy to grow. Um, they, they, they don't mind watering it once in a while. We do that to everything. But they don't want to have to cover it in pesticides right. and, and work with it all the time. And they're not picky on the form as long as it's a, a pretty shape of a flower and a pretty color. Yeah. And I think that's perfect. So to me, the perfect rose is something that pleases the general public. And blooms they, a lot. It blooms a lot. All summer. All, everything yeah. that we breed now blooms from here, May, till November. What? So that's a little, yeah, May till November. You could cut roses on a balcony in Vancouver. I've had friends that said, Brad, it's late in November, early December. It protected spot. I look at the rose bloom I just cut. And this is, this is in December. And then they will have blooms maybe late April in an early year or in, or in May. There's no other plant that does that. What's your favorite color for a rose? Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this before. I, I love white. I love a big bouquet of white. I love the creamy colors. Um, the corals, though, I love too because the they glow in the evening. I and love that white, ivory, yellow yeah, coral. Right, right in through that there. Spectrum, yes. And um, also a color punch of putting something purple in there I like. Oh, yes. Um, there's no true, true blue in a rose, but you can put some purple in there. I love that. A plain red rose, it's kind of boring, but if you have a landscape rose, if the city thinks, you know, we need to brighten up an area and we just want something bulletproof, sure, red would look great there, but. Not, not creative not, enough for you, no, right? Not, not creative enough for me. Is no. there a dream out there that you still have, something that you haven't quite been able to get? The rose for my mother. And she is tough. I keep presenting her with one. She goes, you can do better. You can do better. What? So mom is 81 now. Her name is Lori. What does she want? Everything, perfection. She wants lavender, mauve. That was her wedding colors. It has to be fragrant and it has to be healthy. And that does not exist anywhere in the rose world. Most lavender roses are unhealthy. They have ones now that are healthy, but they're not 
fragrant. She wants fragrance. She wants everything. And, and, Brad, I, I sensed a little bit of frustration there when you said it yes, that last little bit. I've shown her some that are extraordinary. And not good she enough. said, not good enough. You can do better. And yet you're doing this for her for free because it's your mother. You get paid a lot of money for your services. Yes, I do. I, I, and it's going up all the time. Uh, it, 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 but I, I'm not motivated. Money doesn't motivate me. Well, I'm, don't tell I, people I, that. I, well, nobody. I get a kick out of it. It's fun. It, but, it is getting more fun 30 years later than the day I started. It is getting that, more well, that's fun. That's obviously why yeah. you are so good at it. Uh, the Bette Midler rose, the mm-hmm. Divine Miss M, that was a beautiful, creamy, white yeah, yeah. rose. Very unusual shape, huge rose, and they say it looks like there's a big dollop of whipped cream on it. It does. And she rejected the first rose they offered her, and it was from the biggest breeding firm in the entire world. And she rejected it. And then she saw, fo- they contacted me, and I, I thought, mm, okay, this is what I think she'll like. I sent that in, and Apparently, she just loved it, and she saw the rose there, got to meet her. Really nice lady, very genuine. All because yeah. of roses. All because of so roses. So you're meeting celebrities, you're being flown all yeah. over the world. Yes. All we, because you make spectacular roses. Yeah, yeah. When in first class, they, uh, we almost, well, we didn't almost crash. The plane ran out of gas, so we, uh, after, well, after circling LaGuardia, yeah. That's scary stuff. It was, it was a lot stuff. of fun, but um, New York was great. I loved it. You told me that you've got a rose that's coming out soon. Yes. That is just going to be a superstar. A superstar. Next year is our 30th anniversary in business, and my rose agent, other growers have said this is the best. So you have a rose agent? Yes, he's in the UK, Dylan, <laughs> okay. Dylan Reese, and okay. he, he knows everybody in the rose world. So what he does is go goes to the different growers and says, look, I'm representing Brad, and these are his new roses. And you're going to try them. and Because um, you don't do. grow them. You don't breed them. You grow I, them. I breed and them. Then you and we send... have a retail nursery. And then we send out to the field growers. They're the photocopy machine. Right. I, I want to create. And somebody else can photocopy it. Um, and uh, so the, this rose is a beautiful golden color, but it has a little bit of scarlet on the edges, sometimes a little more apricot and coral. It changes through the season. And we've tested it for years, and it's never shown any kind of disease. Blooms constantly, has a frilly little edge to it. Uh, I'm known for ruffly blooms and different shaped flowers. So next year that'll be out. And that's called Glowing Inspiration. So look for Glowing Inspiration next year. Yeah, either at our nursery or through a mail-order nursery in in Canada if you're somewhere at a distance from here. That's amazing. How do you pick the right rose for the area that you live in? Um, talk to somebody knowledgeable. So go to the, there's, we have great garden centers in the lower mainland. They're fantastic. And I'm sure there's some in Vancouver and just find out, look, what do you have that's growing well here that people come back and, and say are doing well. And I can throw one name out there. Everybody knows Julia Child, the famous chef. Fantastic rose. It's in all the parks. It's everywhere and it does well. The Julia Child rose? Oh yeah, Julia Child rose. It's a yellow fragrant rose. We use it in breeding and I've never heard anybody say anything bad about it. We, for our 25th year, we did a rose called Our Anniversary. It's great. And the next year is the Glowing Inspiration Rose. But there's a lot of really good ones. But the unfortunate thing is when we go to the average garden center, a lot of times we see the famous old ones that we know, the Peace Rose. Yeah. And this, they're actually, on the scale of one to four of resistance to disease, there are one. What we're breeding now is a three and four resistance. So that's completely different. So don't pick different. one of those old-fashioned roses. No, don't pick, pick If newer. you want one for, um, you know, to remember grandmother, sure, plant one or come and, come and see me and spend ten or 20000 and you can have your own rose for her. You meant her. dollars. Yeah, that's how much it costs to hire Brad. <laughs> uh, uh, now, what is your absolute favorite rose? Oh, people ask that. Uh, the one that's in the trunk going home with somebody. But I have a few favorites, <laughs> and the, there's one called Rosemary Harkness. It's very rare, and it's in the corally shades with peach and a little pink on the outside and I, I got it many years ago from England it's hard to find we, we bring a few plants in every year and it has a strong citrus like fragrance there's Ooh. nothing like it nothing in the world smells like it and I, w- I would say that's my ultimate favorite rose I would say from what I've learned from Brad when you're going to your nursery make sure you ask for Brad Jalbert's roses or like from select roses sure. uh, out there because yep. otherwise people are just they're going to stock the same old same old and you're they, not going to get that variety or ask ask for what is healthy. Okay, yep. that make good good advice, Brad. You come back and see us sometime. Okay, I will. thanks for having me. Would love to have you. That is Brad Gelbert from Select Roses in Langley. You can look them up online. You know, BC has a lot uh, resting on the future of liquefied natural gas. Look at what's just happening in the northern part of our province. Right, the largest single ever infrastructure project in Canada that is getting underway there on the hopes that the prices for LNG will stay high and stable. 
Well, the Global Energy Monitor says that international boom in liquefied natural gas exports is actually undermining global efforts to stop climate change. And they say Canada is one of the industry's biggest players. That report was released this week and says that there are projects that are in development globally that by the year 2030 would increase natural gas supply to 806 million tonnes above what it is right now. And just over one third of that development, 35%, is here in Canada. Only the United States at 39% has more new natural gas exports in the works, according to this report. The Global Energy Monitor is an international non-governmental organization that catalogs fossil fuel infrastructure. We wanted to talk more about this report now with the help of Ted Nace, who's the executive director of Global Energy Monitor. Ted, thanks for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. What prompted this look? Was it the increasing prices for liquefied natural gas? Uh, no, it's really the uh, the climate issues that have come to the fore. Um, you know, the natural natural gas exports through in liquid form are, are tripling in the next decade, and it's a lot of. Uh, we were surprised by how much money was uh, was was slated to be invested in these projects. You know, well over a trillion dollars globally in U.S. dollars. Canada alone, over five hundred billion Canadian dollars. So there's a very large a very large investment in infrastructure that's going to last for the next forty years. And uh, uh, you know, it hasn't been looked at that much. Yeah. And so, what brought this expansion of infrastructure about? Do you think? Well, the natural gas industry has, in the past, mostly shipped its product by pipeline, and that means it's been restricted to, you know, land land masses. So, from say from Russia into Europe or across uh, the North America, uh, LNG, the you know, turning gas into a liquid and sending it across the ocean has mostly been restricted to some producers in the Middle East, like Qatar, going to some consumers like Japan and South Korea. So what's changing is the natural gas industry wants to globalize. They want to get all this fracked gas out of North America and bring it over to these Asian markets. The story that they're telling their investors in order to justify it is that this Asian market is pretty much on an indefinite growth path. The other story they're telling is that this is a climate-friendly solution. Right. And I know the argument. The argument is that you are weaning those countries off of uh, more harmful um, energy you know, uses such as coal or things like that. What about that argument? Well, that argument was even promoted uh, 10 years ago by the environmental community. So it's not surprising that it's still lingering out there. But as they've learned more about the you know, natural gas production cycle, learned more about methane, that story just doesn't hold up anymore. Natural gas may be worse than coal. It's at least as bad. Uh, the problem is that uh, when you produce natural gas, you always have leakage. Now, it, it may be that you get most wells pretty tight, but there's always going to be some bad actors. And then the leakage persists across the pipe, you know, across the whole supply chain, uh, the pipelines, the compression facilities that put it on the ships. Even while it's on the ships, it's at 160 degrees below zero. Some of that will evaporate. Then again, when they regasify it, and then when they get it into the domestic, uh, you know, demand system, when it's going into households, into industry, all these parts along the system are going to leak a little bit. And if it even adds up to two or three percent, methane is such a powerful global warming gas that it outweighs the benefit of burning natural gas instead of burning coal. Right. And you said in some ways that it's worse than coal. Like how, how do you think that is? Like what's the alternative then? Well, well, uh, well, the, the, well, quantitatively it's 100 times worse than coal on a pound per pound basis, but it only lasts for 10 years. So you have to do an apples to apples comparison um, over some relevant time period. The alternative is simply to make the transition to renewables. But are we on track to do that fast enough for these countries that need those energy sources sooner rather than later? Yeah, well, that's the good news here is, uh, for one thing, these, these LNG resources are not locked down yet investment-wise. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Asia and North America, Europe, all of, the, all of them are in a very rapid transition to, uh, to wind and solar with battery backup. So, you know, uh, people uh, who haven't looked at the prices lately may be surprised there's uh, – 
uh, Lazard Bank does a levelized cost study comparing renewables to, um, you know, coal, gas, et cetera, nuclear. And right now, uh, nat- natural gas is no longer the cheapest option. Actually, renewables are coming out, you know, ahead. Right. Uh, we see uh, large uh, power plants in mid mid construction being abandoned in India in favor of these very large solar farms. Is it possible then that LNG is just a transitional energy source? Well, that would be, that's the, that's the narrative of industry, and that's, that was the narrative of the environmental community. The problem is you're, you're building infrastructure that's going to be in place for 40 years. The, you know, climate scientists are saying we have to make substantial progress towards getting off fossils even within the next decade. They're asking for uh, natural gas use to be cut down by 15% by 2030 and by 40% by 2050. We're not going to get there if we triple our LNG capacity and lock ourselves into uh, you know these assets. And then from an investor standpoint, with renewables getting cheaper all the time, these investments could easily be stranded. That's what happened to a lot of the coal investments that were made around 2011. By 2016, most of the coal mining companies had gone bankrupt. That coal investment was all done on, the, on a narrative of, of unending uh, Asian growth. They called it the super cycle. And so they plowed their billions in, and it ended up causing a lot of pain in the, you know, among mutual funds that invest in, uh, in energy. Right. So for now, though, it looks like it's full speed ahead with these investments in LNG infrastructure. Where do you foresee, Ted, that whole situation coming to a head? I would say it's not full speed ahead. Right now, a lot of uh, big projects are under consideration. So, you know, fortunately, we are actually at the right end of the decision process. Right now, less than 5% of these projects have the green light to totally, you know, go into construction. They're, they're not uh, at what they call the uh, final investment decision stage. And in Canada, you know, most of it, the, the great bulk of it is not committed money yet. So it's still, there's still time to change the ship, you know, the, the course of the ship and steer in a new direction. Does that sound like it's actually going to happen to you, though? Well, if I were if I were if I were talking about Saudi Arabia, I would say no. But Canada has alternatives, and I you know I very much think that uh, the winds are shifting on energy very quickly right now, and so is public opinion. I mean, um, I think the best thing uh, the the best thing in terms of uh, of a pattern is to see how quickly things shifted with coal. So ten years ago, they were going to build uh, well over a hundred new coal plants in the United States. Now it's all about how quickly they can retire the coal plants. Right. Um, you've got a state like Texas, which is shutting down coal plants that were built less than 10 years ago and is the biggest producer of wind power in the United States. That's, a, that's, the, that's an energy, you could say that's very much like Alberta. It's an energy state, but they see the handwriting on the wall. You see investors like Warren Buffett moving their money behind wind. Um, so it's a worldwide phenomenon. And uh, no, I'm optimistic. It's, it has to go quickly, uh, but, it, but it is happening. All right, Ted, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That is Ted Nace, who is the executive director of Global Energy Monitor, talking about their report they released this week, talking about the infrastructure that we are building internationally for liquefied natural gas exports. It is time now for Travel Best Bets, and Claire Newell is with us, somebody I haven't spoken to in what feels like forever. Hi, Claire. <laughs> Hi, Simi. It does feel like forever. I I'm know. so glad to chat with you now. And I wish I, I could say that you were on vacation, but I have a feeling you were no, covering other shows. <laughs> I was I on the morning so. show for five weeks, but get this, I leave for vacation on Friday. So I'm glad that oh. you've, you're talking about this today, about the mistakes that everyone makes on vacation, because I'm just, I started packing last night and I don't want to make these mistakes. Oh, see, first of all, I just wanted to start by saying it's so good that you're starting to pack now. A lot of people listening will be saying it's only Tuesday. Why is she packing for well, Friday? I started Monday. But you're like me. <laughs> okay, good girl. <laughs> right? Yes. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of hearing people doing that because, of course, when you lay things out, you realize, oh, I actually don't need that and yeah. I might need something else. So you can just keep adding. Um, so the what, what I wanted to share today was the type of things people um, commonly I guess they make mistakes when they're traveling. And these are the most common things we hear about when people are going away, even though they're maybe really experienced travelers. So, oh, like what? you know, when you hear about, well, you know, those kind of stories where you hear people, oh, well, I'm always careful about um, the water wherever I go. And I, 
I either, you know, take my refillable water bottle, but when I'm traveling somewhere that I don't think is safe, I'll just buy bottled water the whole time. But then they all of a sudden brush their teeth. Yeah. And get sick for the rest of the trip. Yeah. Those kind of mistakes. So one of the most common is packing essentials in checked luggage. And this is because it doesn't matter if you put things in your checked luggage thinking, you know what? My valuables, my, um, anything that you kind of can't live without. Because when you get, even if it's just a short flight, could be here to, I don't know, LA. Having a checked bag go missing can cause so many problems. Oh, yeah, it is terrible. It's not just having the things stolen. It's the fact that those bags can go missing. And, you know, when I hear that there's 27 million bags that go missing every single year just in North America, it makes me think twice about this type of thing. So medicines, cash, any laptop chargers, valuable jewelry, anything that you can't afford to lose or be without, make sure it's in your carry-on bag. So the next thing is not having any currency for the country that you're flying into. And I have heard every excuse, like, oh, I didn't have the time to go to the bank to get but it. What or, are you going to do if you don't have the currency? That's the thing. And I think people just forget and they think that they can use their tap or, you know, their debit card or their credit card everywhere uh, they no. go. And the fact is, is you can't, especially if you're going off the beaten path. So just even a little bit of currency. And just remember, if you are hoping to exchange it at the airport, that they have certain hours. So if you've got a very, very early flight or very late flight, uh, you may not have it open. So plan ahead for that. That's a good advice. Okay. So the next thing is a, sounds a bit old school is not making a copy of your passport. And, you know, I don't do the physical copy other than at the beginning when I first get my new passport. I put, you know, one in the safe, one to my parents, one to my best friend. But I do scan my passport just so it's fresh in an email that I can open even if my passport or my phone goes missing. Because someone grabs your crossbody bag, if you say you've put it on the back of a chair in a restaurant and it's gone and you've left your passport yeah. stupidly in hey, your bag because you uh, okay <laughs> speaking of which did you see that video that was making the rounds on the internet on social media about the woman who had somebody used a selfie stick to steal her wallet right out no. of her purse as she was crossing a street no i didn't you should see okay, this but it, yeah they people are so crafty oh it's crazy um Oh, that's just so crazy. I'm going to Google it. Yeah, what do I should. have to put in? It's just Selfie like it's, stick, a, it's somebody crossing, uh, they're crossing a street in London. And as they're crossing, they're both talking to a camera because they're obviously using a selfie, the other selfie stick to talk about, here we are in London, blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, what they didn't know until they watched the footage is that behind them, there's another woman with a selfie stick who steals their wallet right out of their bag. Oh just like that like it's unbelievable so yeah it's everywhere i've never even heard of that yeah it is and, and did they get away with it or oh, did yeah. they yeah because they didn't know until the they crossed the street and then stopped to look at the footage and their wallet was long gone at that point oh what a shame so it's it happens so quickly and it just wrecks your old trip um i just want to quickly i know we don't have lots of time but i wanted to just quickly share especially if you're going to a country that doesn't use a western alphabet yes not having your hotel name written on a card or and better yet, the whole address. So just grab, it's easy, grab a business card from the hotel. Yes. Or if before you leave and you're going to that hotel, um, just make a copy of it and write it all down so that when you land from an airport and you don't speak the language, you don't have a clue what, you know, how to explain where you're going, just show them. That's um, really good advice. Last- we use that in Taiwan and it worked like a charm. Yeah, it's just it's such a simple step to save so much headache when you're when you first get there or you're out and about traveling and needing to get back to your hotel. So the last thing I have is to double check your itinerary dates. And this a lot of this has to do with the fact that some people go and try and do everything themselves and just get a little bit confused with the 24 hour clock uh, or the fact that they might arrive the next day or, you know, it just it gets a bit of a. A monkey motion for people when they're looking. So just double check everything is what it should be on your flight itinerary before you leave and make sure your hotels match. And even me, even I have been caught where I booked the hotel on the wrong date. What? Until I double checked that itinerary. Yeah, it was on a, a, an overnight flight and I just booked it on the day I was leaving Vancouver and not 
when I was landing. Claire it was Newell. just a silly, silly. But I double-checked it before I went, good. so it was all good. Good. Okay, now we want to send people on vacation, so where can we send them? Well, this first one is kind of shocking. I, I can't actually believe it's their space. So there, I have a seven-night Alaska cruise, and I'm going to give you the price first. $749, taxes of three twelve, so 1061 That's a great deal. And typically, I, I would see those in May or September. Certainly not August the 3rd of this year, which is peak season. That's crazy, yeah. And also over the long weekend. So there's a glut of ships here, and um, this is one of those years, if you see deals like this, take it. Um, I would recommend that people spend the 20 bucks more because the 749s for an inside, for $20 more, 769 you can do an ocean view obstructed. And what that means is that something will be in front of you, but you still get natural light. So it might be um, the life, one of the lifeboats. Right. But it's um, still, it's it's better than an inside cabin. Anyway, I really like that deal. Okay. There's lots of deals we're seeing like that for next year, like that kind of price. But for this year, it's incredible. I like the, the next, next one. one got is, yeah, I do too, because I love this part of the world. It's to Italy and it's a long stay. It's 19 nights total. So it's leaving March the 3rd, which is a nice time to be in Italy. It's the flight over five nights hotel in Rome, then 14 nights in Sorrento. Okay. So if you don't know where that is, it's a beautiful part of the world. Anyway, um, you can Google it and it comes with your breakfast every day and the airport transfers for $22.99 and taxes of $6.80. So all in $29.79. Good price. Now, the next one I'm going to give you with hesitation. Okay. Why? Because a, we're trying to see if we can get more space. Um, I didn't have time to change it. It's been selling so well. Now, there are some, we'll cross, we'll get people on a wait list if we have to. This is an 11 night Scandinavia and Russia cruise doing seven countries. So the itinerary is outstanding. May the 12th of next year, it's the air 11 night cruise and transfers. It's the price point. Anytime I see something like 28, 2900 plus the taxes, I think it's a good deal. This is the first time I've seen it for 1799. Taxes of eight ninety eight, twenty six ninety seven, all in. Wow, three hundred bucks more for an outside cabin, but it's the itinerary. It's round trip Copenhagen, so Denmark. It also stops in Latvia, Estonia, Russia, so Saint Petersburg for two nights, Finland, Sweden, Lithuania, and then back to Denmark. That's so a it's fabulous just, trip. It is such a great trip, and um, so. Uh, again, you can call in and uh, I hate to do this. I've never done this to you before, but, um, I just got one minute before I came on, there was a note saying we're having uh, trouble with space. Oh, okay. So we'll see. We'll see. You'll do the best you can do, right? Maybe another date. Absolutely. Okay. Yep, we might find another date. For All sure. right. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Simmy. That's Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets. For more information, check out their website, travelbestbets.com.